So yeah, getting this thing started. Would you be able to give us a little introduction about Zenfields, really what it's all about on there, maybe a little bit of what you talk about on there, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, Zenfields is a Soto Zen Buddhist temple, but now when I say that word temple, you might think of a, a building with a certain degree of architecture. And at present, we borrow other people's spaces. So we're, we're, fair, we're a fairly small uh, organization. And I, and I feel like I need to give you a little bit of backstory if I, I'm going to talk about Zen Fields. So I, I studied and trained at a, at a Zen temple in Pennsylvania, actually, maybe closer to your neck of the woods. Zen Fields is in Iowa. And I studied there for 15 years uh, with, with my teacher and my, my sangha, my community. And, um, after my, you know, your, my educ, your edu, our education for this particular practice is never finished, mm -hmm. but there are certain markers where you're given permission to teach. Uh, your teacher. And that was the case for me. And I decided it's time for, for several reasons. I needed to exit the training temple where I practiced at. And so I, I worked as a chaplain for a year in York, Pennsylvania, as well as in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I get the good chocolate from. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and during that year long process, I already, I also developed a relationship with my now wife, and we decided before I finished a program I was in that we would move to Iowa, where I am now, partly because um, her family is in, in Iowa. I love my family and uh, I love her family as well. And we, it just seemed to be the right choice for, for both of us to, to move here to Iowa. And so when I first arrived here in 2014, I didn't have any job. I didn't have anything lined up. Um, and I just started to put out feelers for, for you know, telling people, you know, I, I'm a Soto Zen Buddhist priest. I offer meditation retreats. And I started meeting various groups of people that were practicing in some way or another. And that's kind of how I got myself started and getting to know people in the area. And my wife actually is also a Soto Zen Buddhist priest. Mm. So the two of us, we have kind of joined our, our, our forces and, uh, people have been coming to us over the past several years and, and we to them and wanting to, with the desire to offer Dharma, which is the, I don't know, what is Dharma? Well, teachings of the Buddha, but more broadly speaking, it has to do with how we live our life and with a emphasis on putting effort towards living in harmony with each other yeah. as much as that can be possible yeah. uh, and living in harmony with the natural world as well, as much as that can be possible. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we don't get into difficult places with other people. As long as we're in a relationship with another person, there's going to be difficulty sometime yeah. um, <laughs> in there. But in any case, we want to make this offering because we're both, we're both certified Soto Zen Buddhist teachers. Um, we each have our own teachers, but so it's one thing that we both do. Zen fields is one thing that we both do. Um, just to 
you know, I don't want to talk too much for my, my wife, but she has another job that has to do with domestic and sexual violence prevention that she does. Um, and so I just share that because in many ways that is already Dharma work. It's Dharma activity. And so we want to, we want to integrate at Zen fields, not just the contemplative, contemplative practice of meditation or as what we call Zazen, but also integrating that with activity, uh, but what we call bodhisattva activity of how can we actually help other people, uh, in a, in a really concrete way. So, uh, presently, and actually the past couple of years, for example, this is just some examples, and I don't say this to puff myself up or to puff ourselves up here, but, um, our practice, our contemplative practice gives us the inspiration and the energy to help other people. And in another, uh, two years, for two years, we, we invited a, a Honduran family to be with us that were seeking asylum. And, uh, when it, for, for the most part, that, that, uh, invitation went really well. They, we learned a lot from them and gave them a, a space to grow and flourish. And at present, just within the past few weeks, we've invited a Haitian that, no, the Honduran family has, has since left and they're on their own. They're, they're finding ways to establish themselves here in our community. And now a Haitian family has come and uh, that we know from uh, various excursions to Haiti. And they're living with us now also seeking a similar, they're in a similar situation, the Honduran family. So this is one of the ways that contemplation and action go together for us. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody to do something like that, but I, I feel confident because my wife knows uh, Haitian and Spanish and English. So, so it makes it uh, makes things doable for us. Um, as far as I, I'm concerned, I also teach at a community college. I teach world religions at a community college here in Iowa called Des Moines Area Community College. I love the subject. It's part of what turned me on to Zen Buddhism is the the academic study of world religions. Now, there are so many different world religions out there and... People often in modern times were in this unique circumstance to study so many different streams of wisdom. And it's for some, for some people, it's really hard to know which one is the right one. (laughs) And and as an instructor of world religions, I'm faced with that perplexity as well, because I've committed myself as a priest to Soto Zen. But that doesn't mean I can't learn from other religious traditions as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fun, to me, it's very fun. And I do my best to get students motivated to, 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 uh, I, I think people are generally interested in the study of world religions. And, and so it's parsing out some of the baggage that some people have with religion and, yeah. and saying, okay, this is what we're actually studying. And I'll take the students to on field trips to various, uh, religious uh, houses of worship, whether it's a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a Buddhist temple or a Sikh temple. Mm. We go to all of those places during the semester. So that's another piece of my work. And a third piece is uh, teaching trauma-sensitive yoga. And that's for uh, 
I got into this part. So part of the reason that I'm in, I found my place within Soto Zen is you know, back, uh, rewinding many years, about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, 1994, when I met my teacher, I was in university. I was studying world religions. I was studying the philosophy of religion. And I really wasn't very happy. Um, my mind was very agitated. And all of these philosophical concepts, different concepts from other religious views coming in, it also created a lot of confusion. In, uh, on top of that, all of the hormones that are go is going through a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's a and lot. It's a, it's a lot. I was getting into drugs just to, you know, calm myself down, but also recreationally to, to uh, be with friends, to make friends and to keep friends. Mm -hmm. And um, when I first met my Zen teacher, I sat down with her. She taught me how to comport my spine, my body, my arms, my legs, and what to do with my breath, what to do with my mind. It was the first, this was the first time, you know, I've been studying world religions, but this is the first time I could see, oh, there's something I can actually physically and mentally do mm -hmm. that will change my experience, change my perception, change my perspective on the world, and actually physiologically change me. Yeah. And I consequently felt better than I'd ever felt without having done any drugs or drinking alcohol. Mm. And I felt concentrated, I felt calm. I was just and I was just sitting with her. You know, just sitting with her. And it wasn't more than an hour that we had meditation practice followed by a reading. And uh, I thought, yeah, I got to keep doing this practice. Mm. Now, at that time, I had no inkling that I would be a Buddhist priest. Actually, I was thinking of being a professor of, of religion. I was kind of thinking more about that. But it, um, that's another story. But in any case, I knew that the contemplative practice was absolutely essential for my well-being going yeah. forward. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, I just continue to commit to that, for, to, the, to the contemplative practice and just see, okay, that's going to lead to something. That's going to lead to something. It's going to lead to purposeful action that will be fulfilling in some way. And uh, so it led me to the, to back to my teacher. It was kind of a long story, a circuitous route there, but it led me back to that same teacher that I started with. Diane Benage is her name and stayed with her and then kind of, made my way here to Iowa as a teacher myself and wanting really to offer these practices and studies of the Dharma to those that are interested. So I think uh, that's a long way of saying that this is what you know, Zen Fields is about. We offered, we offer opportunities, not just for contemplative practice, but for discussion to talk openly about um, whether it's it's Buddhism or how other relig how how Buddhists might configure other other world religions in um, in the mind or make sense of the differences the diversity out there uh, and also how do we act how do we act in in the in the world what mm -hmm. what is what constitutes right livelihood so this is not there's not like one answer to any of these questions. But uh, I like to think of Zenfield as an opportunity for us to explore, explore mm -hmm. these questions together without 
somebody saying, oh, this is the right way to think about it. Or, <laughs> you know, there's one answer here and here it is. I'm not, yeah, we're, we're not about to give people the answers. Yeah. Uh, it's more about exploration, inquiry, right? As you were, you mentioned, curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's seated firmly within the Soto Zen tradition. So both my wife and I are, are very deeply rooted in uh, Soto Zen as it has come to us from Japanese origins. And we have, we're both, uh, we're both what are called Kokusai Fukyoshi or international Zen teachers. So we have um, uh, do uh, documentation that connects us directly to the Soto Zen in that as it's practiced in Japan. And we connect regularly with Japanese priests that are located in the United States, particularly on the West Coast for various events, whether it's uh, ceremonial or educational. Usually it's one of those two. And we gather together every so often. So we think it's really important to, to keep the cultural, the cultural bridge between uh, Westerners practicing Zen and Japanese, how they, how, how Japanese practice it to keep that cultural bridge there alive. Cause there's so much to, to learn from, from Japanese teachers of, of Zen. There's a cultural dimension. There's a, uh, there's an ease with which the Japanese embrace their religion that I think mm. as long as you're, you know, you're coming to this practice as I am as a, uh, as a convert. We don't have that same ease. We don't have that same history that we can just say, yes, and just embrace it. It takes more effort. And to see Japanese, um, the way that they they carry themselves and the way that they carry Soto Zen, it's just, it's quite beautiful and, and inspiring to see. So anyways, that's just a little, that's a long answer to your question about Zen Fields. <laughs> that was great though. <clears throat> um, man, I got a lot in my head right now. I don't know where to go. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you being a student of world religion, would you say that there is some kind of golden thread that ties them all together, even though they all have different terminology and how they go to explain the truth and different um, ways to live and, you know, different commandments, you could say? Is there mm. some kind of correlation between all of them that you've come to find that you could um, summarize for us? Absolutely. Yes. 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 hundred percent. And I don't want to diminish the diversity that is amongst the, the world religions. I think that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yet there is, I, I think the only way to make sense of this great diversity is that if we can plug into what unifies all of these religions, whether they're theistic or non-theistic, Buddhism is considered a non-theistic tradition, though, there are gods within Buddhism, if you look at the sutras, but they don't play a central role like God does in Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. Um, regardless, there are there's certainly a foundational theme that runs through all of the religions, at least the ones that I've encountered. And so the way one of the conceptual ways I like to talk about that is that to focus on practice, to focus on practice, to, to defocus on belief. Mm -hmm. The beliefs, say if we have the beliefs up here, the beliefs are going to be diverse. It's like a field of, of 
multitudes of different kinds of flowers. But what, co what connects all these flowers is the earth down below. Mm. And that earth is like the, the practice of the religion. When you get into the practice of it, you'll find a lot of similarities. Yeah. And what is, I think, Zen's gift to us, to the world, one of the strong points about Zen is that we learn to, through study and the practice of Zazen, meditation, through study and the practice of Zazen, we learn to see, con see thought for what it really is, namely concepts that don't have any basis in reality. Rather, to experience life as it is directly, to whatever degree that we can muster that through letting go of thoughts, through letting, that's what meditation is for me, is this, this process of continually letting go of the thoughts. We build all these con concepts in our head around what we're seeing. And it's like we're, we have glasses that are rose colored and when they're rose colored, everything's rosy around us. Right. So Zen meditation is like, take off the glasses and see what it actually is. Uh -huh. uh, and the way that we do that is through, you know, sitting upright, watching thoughts and realizing, Hey, are my thoughts actually correct? Are they, are they a, a proper lens into reality? Or are they not? And the Buddha says that, you know, the first, one of the first uh, of the Eightfold Path is right, um, right view, right intention, right intention or right thought. And for Zen, no thought is the right thought. And that's not to say that we shouldn't think. Yeah. But it's to recognize the limitation of thought itself. Yeah. We, we can't get rid of thoughts. That's not possible. What we can do is recognize that our thoughts limit what we see. And if we're, if we grew up in, in the West, in the United States, in a certain state, in a certain community, in a certain family, that's going to color what we see. It's going to affect how we see things. So what Zen does, what meditation does, any good Zen, any good meditation practice is going to help us to take a step back from that conditioning yeah. and see it you know, just notice, okay, this is the, this is what colors what I see. And it's, it's kind of a fill. It's, it's filtering reality. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something else out here that I'm not noticing. Yeah. And just to have that awareness is really, I think it's essential for modern times mm. because otherwise we just get caught in this. It's like a magnet of, of, of negative discourse yeah. on who's right and who's wrong, which belief system is the correct one. Um, and, and, and it doesn't really take us anywhere. But if we can start to kind of rest the mind, give the mind the, the, the mind that grasps on the thoughts, give it a chance to rest and just notice the thoughts and, and, and start to question, become curious about them. That's the first step. That's the first step. And the second thing, I think where, where Zen comes from and what connects us to all other religions is the focus on compassion, mm. right? Developing, developing compassion yeah. for for not just other humans, but for for ourselves included, but also animals, plants, the planet itself.
Mm-hmm. For, I mean, these are the, the practice of compassion, we've got, we've all got so much to grow here. I'm not perfect at it. I get reminders of that daily. And that's the one of the gifts of being, having a family. Mm. You know, you start to say, ah, okay, I said that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Then that's where the apology comes in handy. But again, you know, these are things, this is something that links all of these world religions that we see. No, there's a, uh, there's a saying that I love from Eckhart, one of Eckhart Tolle's book. I can't remember offhand what name, what name it is, but he says something like, the greatest, the greatest insight in, of humanity is not in our like inventions and that kind of stuff, the technology, but in our, in our ability to see our own faults. Mm. Mm. I, I, I just love that. I, I, I'm sorry I'm not doing his, his uh, writing justice, but I get it. Yeah. That That's ability good. to reflect and realize our own mistakes. Yeah. To me, that's the center, that's the core of all of these religions that we can take a step back and yeah. and Discern. be be critical, like self-critical. Mm. Generally, we're critical of something outside of ourselves, like why don't they change? Yeah, exactly. That's the that's the typical way of perceiving. Why don't they if we could just convince those people over there and those people <laughs> over there yeah. to think like me, we're all uh-huh. good. Uh-huh. Buddhism Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all say, turn it around. You know, yeah. what? what is it that, where are you at fault? Where mm. can you, where can I, where can this person be better? Mm-hmm. That's where the practice begins. Yeah. I, so, you know, I really appreciate your inquisitiveness, your curiosity, your questions. This is the kind of thing I love talking about. And when I'm with... Um, I love my my um, community college students, but sometimes I feel so stuck there mm. <laughs> in, in having this kind of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, yeah. I this is just what I like to do. I you know I, I great. Yeah. It, I just like to come on here and talk about the Dharma. You know, it's good. Better. Good. Um, but yeah. So do you? That was that was a great answer. You know, everything is rooted in compassion it's the foundation of eventually bringing us to compassion one way or the other um now do you feel that the contemplative self inquiry ways of the east are what's needed to bring us to the sense of compassion or maybe just more efficient and bringing us to this sense of compassion, like it just sort of flows naturally from that practice. And maybe that's what's missing from the Western dogma a little bit, because it is in there. It's in the it's in the Bible, <laughs> you know, God is love. But maybe it's hard to touch upon that love if one doesn't have a meditative practice and looks within, you know, turns the, the finger from out to in. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you say that's kind of I don't I was gonna say the problem, but maybe that's just where Eastern philosophy is a little bit better in that realm in sen- in the sense of bringing us to compassion. I, I don't want to say that co- definitively because there are some people in, in say in Christianity that just. They, they found what they need to find. You know, they're, yeah. they're, 
particularly they're just very very loving very deep very insightful people yeah i know it's hard to generalize tradition. yeah it is it's hard to generalize <laughs> yeah it, it is i i just i think it's a comp it, it's a complementary thing that's mm-hmm. happening when we study another religion right so as as a westerner myself studying what is a asian religion has help me to appreciate the Western religion that I was brought up with. And, uh, but for me, I just felt like I needed, I I love the Dharma so much. I needed to be totally immersed in this particular religion. I just, you know, I I love to wear these, this is just a, I love to wear this robe. I love it. You know, it's, (laughs) thank you. It's, it's, to me, it's the, you know, when I wear, I'm wearing the teaching. That's what mm. we say. Well, we mm. teach the you're teaching is, the dharma. is the, you're yeah. wearing the Dharma. You know, yeah. it's a very physical practice. And I, if anything, that's what I feel like. <clears throat> I can't speak for all of Asian traditions. I can speak for Zen. Though. It's a very physical practice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is often what's absent from the discourse in the West is that yeah. it tends to be very spiritual, which is like, outside of the body yeah and i come from a uh, a competitive swimming background so my body you know you get your body in the water and you move it and zen practice is a very physical practice if you're not you know the meditation practice itself we're not focusing on some like visions of light or visions of buddha Uh, In fact, we're trying to get rid of those things Mm. and be fully present in our physical body. Um, My teacher, she herself was a classical ballet dancer. So she brought her body very much into the practice. She would, she embodied very much in a physical way. She embodied the practice of, uh, of Zen. And when she sat in meditation, I was just like, you know, you look at her from a distance, she's so solid, so straight. It just, you walk into a room and she was sitting there and all of the energy in the room is just like, everything's mm. settled. And you, you, you automatically bring mindfulness right to the front of your mind. Other teachers have had that similar kind of effect on me, like Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, when he enters a room of a thousand people, everybody just quiets down. Mm. And there's something about the physical presence of their practice that um, that is very powerful. And uh, it's not that it's absent in Western, Western religions, but this emphasis on the physical body is what really attracted me to Zen. Because yeah. it's concrete. You know, it's not talking about I, the only way you can really talk about high philosophy, at least Buddhist philosophy, is if you're really grounded. I mean, yeah. you can, anybody can pick up a Buddhist sutra and read it and, and like have a mind blowing experience. But the difference is that we have to ground it in our physical body. We have to be grounded in our body. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, I think otherwise it's just, it's like a strong wind blowing and you just get knocked off balance with it. So rooting ourselves in our physical body is, I think that's the gift of Zen practice as it has been transmitted to the West from the East. And I can see, now there's certain, 
certain Buddhist um, people that I'm in touch with now that are Westerners that are <clears throat> that are taking this practice, and it's interesting that there's less in general for Westerners there's less attention given in some cases to the physical body, right? There, there's excuses made <laughs> for not sitting on the floor, for example, not trying to sit in a lotus posture. Mm -hmm. um, and here's where yoga comes in. Here's where yoga, you know, another, you know, Hinduism is a very, it has a very deep philosophical root. Uh, yoga has very deep philosophical and spiritual roots. Um, and yoga in modern times has brought to us, the Western world is just wonderful. These, uh, Hatha yoga practices, these physical practices that where we can actually concretely, um, we do these Hatha yoga exercises so that we can settle more easily into a sitting practice. And sometimes, you know, I teach both yoga and meditation and I encourage folks to do both. Yeah. But it's interesting me, interesting to me how difficult it is for the folks that kind of started out with Zen meditation to bring in a, a physical practice like hatha yoga and how difficult it is that people who start in the hatha yoga practice to sit meditation mm. there's a, there's not a lot of crossover there people tend to be siloed in those two groups but originally hatha yoga practice was developed over uh, over a millennia over a thousand year period so that practitioners could sit I guess I worry a little bit uh, about how, you know, when, especially for folks who are not deeply connected to the Japanese, uh, what happens to their body, you know, how they mm -hmm. perceive their body in the practice. <clears throat> I see people making a lot of excuses for why they can't sit on the floor, um, but not a lot of effort made towards doing that. It's just my perception. I could be off on that, but that's where I think the offering is, uh, particularly in Zen, is this uh, getting getting into our physical body and um, and working towards, right, working towards sitting on the floor in meditation. I have nothing against sitting in chairs. I think it's fine to sit in a chair as long as you're working towards sitting on, a fl on the floor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. It's just a challenge I put out to people. And, and I'm sure some people will be like, hey, man, no way. I can't sit on the floor. I, and I couldn't either. You know, when I first started sitting, I, I mean, for brief periods of time, I could. But my teacher, my teachers gave me a challenge. He said, why aren't you sitting full lotus? And I said, what? <laughs> I can't sit full lotus. Well, I started working at it. I started getting my hips more flexible. I get started. So... We, we tend to make, in the West, we tend to make excuses why, uh, and, and create a spiritual practice that is disconnected from the body. Yeah. And I think we just need to be cautious of that. And, and not, uh, I believe that people can do much more than they think they can. Oh, yeah, for right. sure. Definitely. Hmm. Okay. Well, what is the purpose of, Truly, if you could explain it, of meditation, what do we meditate 
for? What is the work? What like what are, what are we trying to do once we ground ourselves in the body? Are we trying to see, notice? Uh, how would you explain what meditation is? Maybe to somebody that has no idea, right? Simply. Really, <laughs> this is a really good question and a really hard one to answer. Mm. There's different levels of, of response to that. Um, so for someone who's just getting started, that doesn't know a lot about Zen, that doesn't know a lot about meditation, <clears throat> and they want to have some, some quote-unquote success in meditation, there inevitably needs to be some goad. Yeah, I have to be careful with the answer to this question. Because if I'm, you know, if I'm coming from a very strict Soto Zen place, we say there's no benefit to the practice at all. And that's to discourage people from looking for some benefit and to encourage them to do the practice for the sake of the practice, to not Mm -hmm. look for reward at the end, Mm -hmm. because it creates a, it creates a dichotomy, a dualism. Like I'm here. And I need to go here so that I'm better, that I'm more enlightened, that I'm more concentrated, focused, relaxed, whatever this goal might be that you might have. So, you know, that's a traditional response to that kind of a question. And for those who are really, you know, really earnest, strong seekers, um, or, or maybe those who are who get themselves into trouble with being too goal oriented, that might be a good response. Mm. But then there's folks that are just, you know, they know they've heard of the benefits. There's been scientific studies that show what happens to the brain and the physiology. Well, we we can't ignore that either. I think Mm -hmm. it would be, um, it would be irresponsible in some ways to ignore those studies and say that, oh, there's no, there's no benefit at all. The the answer would be yes and no. It depends on Mm -hmm. a lot of different factors. Yeah. But again, generalities, um, we're talking generalities. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But if you practice something, you'll get better at it, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing is that, you know, in that case, I don't, I, I think of meditation is not like a pill. But sometimes people think of it as a pill. You do it and then you feel better, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's not a pill in that way. It's rather, it's more like learning how to play a musical instrument or learning a sport. Yeah. When you first start it, you're going to be clumsy and klutzy with it. Mm-hmm. And as you go, you develop the skill and you intuitively, my experience is that you intuitively get to know what you need to do or what you're capable of yeah. in the process. Mm -hmm. And you learn by watching other people, especially teachers that have been down the path for some time. You learn by seeing how they comport themselves, how they sit still. And um, that kind of thing can be very, very helpful. And to me, I think it's vital. That's how we really uh, advance, I think, in the practice of meditation is by seeing other people. Um, Even if they don't have a lot of experience, just to sit with a group of people meditating Mm-hmm. can have a lot of benefit. You, you, uh, my teacher would often say that if you think, you know, don't think that you're not contributing just because your mind is not still. The fact that you're with a group of people in the, in real time, your energy affects everybody else's. Mm. You know? So 
you know, I might not all the time. So this, I think in the West, we tend to, we're so individually oriented. We focus on what works for us personally. And we, we tend to disregard the group. And this is what one of the things we can learn from the Japanese um, Sangha is that there's a more of a focus on, on the well-being of the group. Uh, I don't think we should be ignoring the individual. But there needs to be some balance there. <clears throat> and a Sangha, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, when I don't feel great, but I'm sitting with a group, other people might benefit just from me being there and vice versa. So, we sometimes discount how we are affecting other people. I think actually more often than not, we discount how we are affecting the well, how we affect other people. Mm. And if we have the intention to sit and meditate and we're present, even if we don't know the other person's name and the group of the other people, just to sit, sit down in, in, in a, in a welcoming silence and uh, in an atmosphere that's set up for deepening our, uh, our presence, then we're going to benefit other people. Mm -hmm. So, we have to consider that you know, meditation isn't just about our, how it benefits us. It's also how it benefits others. Mm. That's important. Yeah, that's true. And the whole world, ultimately. <laughs> the whole world. Yes, absolutely. The whole world. And that's, yeah. um, and in fact, that's what, what Buddhism teaches. I, there's a saying of uh, one of our Japanese teachers, um, Uchiyama Kosho Roshi, he says, uh, tenshi ippai no shoume, which means tenshi means heaven and earth, or loosely translated as the entire universe. Ippai means full, no shoume, the life that is full of the entire universe. Mm. Right? That's our individual self. Mm -hmm. Our individual self is the life that is is that is pervading the entire universe, and that's that's where. Our, that's what we're practicing for, to mm -hmm. see that we're not just this individual self. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, there's one, there, that this self contains everything in the entire universe except for, for one thing. And that thing is, you know what that thing is? Me? You? Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mm. self is gone. Yeah. There's no self, but there's the entire world right inside of us. And so maybe we can say that that is the goal, right? To notice that it's not a goal. It's actually the reality. Mm -hmm. The goal is to see, Oh, that's the reality. It's yeah. all, it's whether we know it or not, it's still, we, we, we affect the entire universe. Right? Our actions have a, have a effect on the whole world yes. and they are not done detached from the world it's because the world is that we can do what we do because mm -hmm. we are the world because we are the world yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah wow we are the world and we are not the five aggregates right is that what we're trying to say <clears throat> yeah those five aggregates form mm -hmm. right this body is not me feelings come and go our perceptions are often erroneous uh, formations, the mental, the thoughts. Also, I mentioned the, you know, the 
the illusion of, of the concepts that we associate with reality, this illusory, and consciousness. These all are constant in flux and changing. Yeah, we can't hold on to it. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to see is a sort of a sort of permanence outside of the temporary aggregates because all of those aggregates we we seem to inadvertently attach a sense of permanence to and then when we lose them that is what causes suffering it's because it's just a distortion in our perception of what is truth we don't even know we're doing it but right yeah would you say that is the essence of it is just seeing that this self that you know Gary and Daishin, we are temporary. Every part of us is temporary. Mm, that's mm. actually, that might sound, that's like, whoa, that might sound a little scary, but it's the truth. You can either run from it or you can embrace it, right? So it's like, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to see the truth or are you going to just see some kind of false reality? Um, would you say that's, that's, what, that's the essence? I think that's a big part of it where to the degree that we can embrace impermanence to that degree, we lessen our suffering. Mm -hmm. So there's a, it's more like a continuum where Nirvana is on one side, the complete cessation of suffering and, um, uh, bondage is the other side. Yeah. And we're somewhere in between those two. Yeah. We're in between depending on the day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the dance. That's yin and yang. That's why yin and yang is so poignant to us when we see mm -hmm. it. Because that's that's like what that's what we are, and not. It's almost like that is that is life, life and death, yin and yang. Yeah, nirvana, samsara. That's what it is. Some kind of paradox. It depends on the day. You know, it depends on the day. Which one? Which side of the coin we're at? That's good. Mm -hmm. mm, wow. And, 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 uh, Sato Zen also, you know, I, I put this kind of separation nirvana on this end and samsara on this side. But, you know, if you study the philosophy, the, the deeper philosophy here, the, this, these two concepts, nirvana and samsara in Sato Zen practice are not separate. In fact, mm -hmm. they're actually two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know, nirvana and samsara, we say, are one. Yeah. And so Zen is a very, much a world affirming tradition that anything is workable whatever we're not here to shame people for suffering that would be totally against the you know zen principles if you're suffering that's an opportunity for transformation yeah. for change to learn to grow from that suffering in some way and i say that i say that but when you're in it it's a really difficult place to be. Mm. Right? The, this is where we need help, support, guidance. Um, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I'll just take my suffering and change it. Mm. No, that's it doesn't happen. Just like you can't just convince yourself mentally because you can unconvince yourself too. We need the support of others when we're struggling, when we're in pain. But ultimately, all suffering, that's the foundation that I work from is that all suffering is workable, whatever it is. There's a... Um, uh, there's a joke that I think is somehow connected here that I just heard yesterday. Why did the the Buddhist coroner get fired from his job? 
Why is that? He always put birth as the cause of death. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, man, that took me a second. Yeah, that's good. Wow. That's definitely a Zen joke right there. <laughs> I hope people get that. that. But that's what, you know, that's basically what we're saying is that if you're alive, well, that's the cause of your suffering. Yeah. And it can also be the cause of your delight in the world, right? It can go either direction depending on um, how we practice. And so, <clears throat> hey, we need to put effort into practice. That's a, that's a, that's part of what practice is. It means to put effort into mm. practice. We, want, we can't, de- yeah, we can't depend on, on somebody else to do it for us. And that's mm. not to say that, you know, sometimes the effort comes in, in allowing other people to do things for us. Mm. Mm. You know, that sometimes that's where the effort is required. Is it? So Zen is not saying that you got to do this all by yourself. Uh, it's not saying that you shouldn't take refuge in the Buddha or if, you know, from a Christian lens to take refuge in Jesus. That takes effort. That takes effort. So there's effort involved in letting go of control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's another, this is another meeting point of Zen and say Christianity, particularly like the, uh, you know, this idea of having faith in in Jesus or faith in God. And that's a definite meeting point there. Zen isn't opposed to having faith in, in a higher being, at least as far as I understand it, because it takes effort to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a letting go process. There's a letting go of, Oh, I can do, I can figure it all out by myself. Yeah. That yeah. You know, Zen is the, that's the antithesis of Zen and figuring it all out by ourselves. Mm. Right, we just, we let go of that. Uh, we got to let go of that. It's not because we, we, we again, we're recognizing our limitations here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I understand why we let go of that because there is no, there is no just solitary self. So, I mean, it's kind of like a team effort. Like that is the self that is the effort. <laughs> yeah. Team <laughs> effort. In it together, I love it. You know, we're in it together. And that's yeah. what the Buddha said on his alignment. Like I and all beings together attain enlightenment. It wasn't him attaining alignment. It was everybody together. Mm-hmm. Mm. Makes sense. We're never, virtue is never practiced alone. Uh, mm. That's good. Yeah, you know, it's the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, right? It's the three jewels. It's the Sangha. We can't negate that. No. Yeah, no. it's powerful stuff. Oh, I had something I was going to ask you. I forgot. Damn. I don't even remember now. <laughs> this is good. This is good. <laughs> Two in the moment, you know, just letting the thoughts come and go. Um, wow. What were we talking about before? I forget. What was Sangha? Oh, we can't do it. You have to do it yourself. Um, you were asking about meditation and um, nature. Um, what people can gain from, right? What people can. Yeah. Ha- you know, what, what do people get out of meditation kind of thing? Yeah. So yeah. I, I kind of, I gave you like a, the, the, the big view, the, the more philosophical, spiritual view of it. You know, in my experience, 
but you know, for folks that are just starting out and being like, oh, this is too much. I can't take all this in. You know, it's a really difficult I can't, I can't say that meditation is necessarily going to benefit somebody. I don't want to say that for sure because it depends on the person and where they're at in their life. Yeah. For example, you know, if you have a, a job that is quite sedentary and you're sitting a lot during the day and you don't get any exercise during the day and then somebody like me tells you, well, why don't you just sit and meditate for half an hour? I don't think that's going to, for most people, that's probably not going to be beneficial because they haven't moved much already. Mm-hmm. So there has to be some, here again, I, I bring back the physical component. We've got to have that aspect in our life in some way. Yeah. For most of human history, most people have been very, very physical throughout the day. And in modern times, we, we are, we've become very, very sedentary and it's been, I think it's affected our health. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, if you're going to practice meditation, you got to balance it with some physical activity. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but for those who are already quite physical, and uh, I think many people who are quite physical already would benefit from sitting down, you know, from being still and learning how to uh, develop that that muscle. It's a kind of a mental muscle of returning again and again to your object of meditation, mm-hmm. like your breathing or your physical body, noticing sensations in your body noticing the coming and going of the breath. Of course, we, we lose awareness of that when we're practicing meditation. And then the practice is to come back, come back to those sensations, the sensation of breathing or the letting go of thoughts, excessive thoughts, sensations in the body, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, I, you know, for me, I can only speak from my own perspective. When I, like I said, when I first sat down next to my teacher, she, we, we sat for 15 minutes. We did walking meditation. We sat another 15 minutes and then she shared a reading. And I said, I felt better than I'd ever felt without doing any drugs or drinking. I mean, that to me, that was testimony enough. It was personal testimony mm-hmm. that this works. I couldn't explain the science at the time behind it, but I knew that it was something that I had to keep doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it's important, you know, nowadays in 1994, when I met my teacher, the internet wasn't even a thing. And you, you could only learn from books if you wanted to, or you meet somebody who's actually done the practice. And my teacher had been practicing for like over 20 years at that point. Mm-hmm. So I was getting the direct transmission. Not, I wasn't, it wasn't coming through a book. It was going through actually seeing her, how she practiced. And I thought, oh, she's doing it like that. Oh, now I know what to do. Yeah. Just like a, a, a goose or baby, a baby duck follows its mother. Yeah. You know, it learns from the way the mother goes and you just follow behind it. That's how, that's how the animals work, right? The mm-hmm. birds, they follow the, the bigger bird and say, oh, I'm looking for worms. Okay. That's how you do it. You pack down in that spot. Okay. Let me try. Yeah. And that's how you learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no, uh, there's no rule reading material for the bird yeah. or the horse. They just, they figure it out. They watch, they, the, it's absolutely essential that you have a, a parent there to um, nurture you along and the, mm-hmm. and the child learns from the parent in the same way for meditation. 
mm. um, persons. And, that, and that's not to create a, you know, you can create a, a, a kind of a toxic relationship there that's not helpful. Um, but in a, ideally, a healthy situation where there is this um, understanding on the part of the teacher that they're, they have a duty, a responsibility to, to nurture. And um, um, that's, that's, that's what's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. I'm glad you describe it as a skill because not a lot of people describe it as a sort of skill that needs to be honed in on, just like a skill of, I don't know, painting or whatever it is that we have as skills, you know, the stuff or any practice that we have in our life. Meditation is definitely some kind of skill, a mental muscle that needs to be worked out. Um, and we do thankfully live in a time where there's plenty of examples that we can follow for sure. It's wonderful that we do have that. That's what I would recommend for anybody wanting to get started on this path is to find somebody that's already tread the path. If you resonate with them, go with that. Um, Because it's really hard. It is hard to get into this realm of meditation, regular meditation, if you don't have anybody to show you the way. Um, It it does seem like craziness. Like you're just sitting with your eyes closed and it's like, I can't do this, right? That's everyone's excuse. When I say, when I mention anything to a non-meditator, I'm not judging. I'm just saying an observation, you know, talk about meditation. I can't meditate. That's everyone's excuse. I can't meditate. My mind just goes crazy. I've heard that countless times. Oh, I just can't sit with my own thoughts. Well, I understand that. I understand where people come from in that. But if you have a teacher, somebody that is able to guide you through, it just seems it's a lot easier. There's, um, there's more, I don't know. It's just, just like any other skill. Like I said, if you're learning to do anything, if you're learning to do anything else, you need somebody there for you. So it's just good to have a guide so you don't have to get lost in the craziness of your own thoughts, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, find somebody online that you resonate with and go with that for sure. Um, cause it helps, it helps tremendously. Um, yeah, it's worth it too. Would you say this whole thing is worth it as in, even if we seemingly, uh, lose our sense of self as we meditate, that's actually the good news per se, right? Like losing mm. your sense of self is it's not, I mean, I was going to say it's the goal. I mean, ultimately, yeah, we do want to stop goals. There is no goal of meditation, but I guess in a way that is, right? In a way, if you want to mm-hmm. look at it from a doctrine standpoint of Buddhism, it is to see, at least to see that you are not the five aggregates of the self. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. How would, no, mm. let me ask you this one. I know we're kind of going on an hour here, but maybe we can finish up on this. I mean, this might be a good note. How would you say this um, ultimately is worth it? You know, how does this actually negate suffering, as they say, or maybe not negate suffering, but allow one to see suffering in a different light, you know, to see samsara as nirvana, to see life as death, to see the yin and yang. How does it all come together in meditation? Yeah. That's a big question, I know. Sorry. Yeah, it's a big question. Yeah, how does it, how's it all worth it? Well, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, uh, we want to be our best self. We want to be our best self. And meditation is one tool that we can use to become our best best self. I think most people desire to be, everyone desires to be happy. 
yeah desires to to have some sense of of uh, knowing that they belong that's yeah. that's really key is that we want we desire to know that we belong here mm -hmm. uh, regardless of our religion or culture or whatnot and so one piece of that i think is is meditation another piece of that is the like i mentioned the teachers to see that oh these are people that that have come a long way my teacher didn't didn't always feel like she belonged and through the practice of meditation she you know she there was some definite changes that took place there mm -hmm. um and as a student practicing with her i can see that she was very there was a human side of her there's a side of her that's very light and bright and there's also this very vulnerable human side and i've noticed that in in other other teachers that i've been close to as well where um they have this very bright side this and that's that comes out of their practice and then when you start to be with a person for longer and longer you start to see their all too human side their failures their faults yeah this is the gift of being with a teacher is that you realize oh they're just being an ordinary they're just an ordinary person just like me yeah and if they can do it with all their mistakes and foibles then i can do it too yeah that's yeah. been the biggest gift of my teacher is not to see her um her greatness her great side although that is important that was important especially at the beginning but as i trained with her over a 15-year period you get to see oh she made that that was a really you know it was helpful and i love my teacher but yeah i saw her do some things that i i thought oh wow she's got a lot to <laughs> practice with there mm -hmm. it may have been stuff with her own family or other students even where there was you know mistakes made and i mean nothing serious but you start to, to look at it and say, oh okay i really have to do this practice myself uh i can't rely 100 percent on somebody else I can't let somebody else do the practice for me. We can rely on each other, but we can't let somebody else do the practice for us. We got to ultimately take responsibility mm -hmm. for our practice. And that's where meditation, I think, where, um, where the responsibility lies. Like we got to wake up at a certain time, make a commitment to sit, right? Whether it's two minutes a day or uh, two hours a day whatever it is that we make a commitment to to sit and mm. um you, one of the things my teacher said is that people will see differences in yourself before you see them mm. that's important right because we're always looking okay am i changing am i well other people will know if you're really yeah. changing mm. um and that was that was certainly the case for me somebody said one of my friend one of my good friends of me eric you you change is there something something you've been doing differently and yeah yeah definitely hey okay you want to come in and say hi and be our special guest here we got a guest yeah maybe maybe all right i'm almost done okay but yeah anyways that, that's kind of my that's kind of my short answer to that mm. that question but i see believe in yourself believe in 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 the practice have faith have trust in the practice mm. and it will i i i from based on my own experience you know just 
what else is there to be to have trust in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Uh, that's good. we 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 desire. You know, it's part of human uh, each human being to we have this component of trust of faith. Whether you want to direct that to God or whatever um, Buddha, however you want to direct it, we need it. We need it, and we need mm-hmm. to develop it. Mm-hmm. And Zen is just very much body oriented. Do it right here, right, right here. You don't have to go to a special place. Hey, honey, come here over here. Handcuffs. Hand? Oh, I got handcuffs. <laughs> want to say hello? Hey. Yeah, here, let me take off my. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, I think on that note, we can probably start to wrap it up. Um, okay. Yeah, this was a great talk. I like the idea of like a, a meditation brings us to a certain sense of personal accountability and personal responsibility. And that eventually leads us to truly a sense of belonging here, you know, maybe a sense of purpose, you could say, a sense of faith in oneself, self, that go, the, the uppercase S self, past this self. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we got to have the faith in, in the big self. Absolutely. Yeah. And that means faith also in other people, that other people can do it, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's the important thing, too, is the Buddha was a human. You know, yes, he's not like yeah. this outward idol, this totem that we bow down to, and he saves mm. us all. It's no, he was a human just like all of us, just like your yeah. teacher, just like any other teacher. It's all possible for all of us. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, hey man, on that note, I think this was a great talk. I appreciate you coming on here, um, sharing your time, effort, and wisdom with us. Um, I don't have anything else to say. Do you have any closing remarks for us? I, I just want to thank you, Gary, for inviting me on your, on your podcast. Uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing to raise, raise awareness about these contemplative practices. So. Well, appreciate you. Um, you're right. you're an uh, important part in it. <laughs> All, right, All right. I think that's a sign to wrap this up. Thank you. Nice. Right. Keep doing your thing. Okay. I wish thank you all the you. best. All right. Take care. Goodbye.